0: This month, we are engaging with COP26 and asking members of staff at UCEM and other stakeholders of the university to engage with the topics which are being discussed and the theme days at the event. So for our Adaptation Loss and Damage Day, we've brought in Dr James Ritson, UCEM's Building Surveying Programme Leader, to ask a few questions on this particular topic. So hi, James.
1: Hello, Andrew. How's things?
0: All well, thank you. How are you?
1: Uh, Okay, very busy at the moment, uh, keeping up to date with all the COP presentations and the different events going on. So very busy time.
0: Yes, plenty to to keep you busy and many updates. So hopefully there's enough time to to properly absorb all of it. So let's move on to our first question. So climate change has already caused extreme weather conditions across the globe. What is being done to mitigate this in terms of our built environment?
1: Well, it's a good question. I think we need to put this into the context of what we mean by this. You know, children born today are seven times more likely to face extreme weather events than their grandparents were. And I think that that's really is really a consequence of our collective actions when it comes to climate change. What we need to do in terms of mitigation is adapting our built environment for these new conditions, lowering our carbon emissions, dealing with the built environment we already have. and That's probably one of the biggest issues that we're going to face, probably why I'm here today talking about the adaption. And also beginning to think about actually dealing with those extreme events and how can we manage those? Because actually, you know, history has taught us that if we don't react to these dangers, they will have an impact on us and they will be catastrophic
0: so, so what do you think needs to be done to make our built environment more resilient?
1: A focus on what we already have. I think that's an important one. I think we constantly look at the new build, the zero carbon. And of course, new build around the world is very important. More people are moving to cities, uh, particularly in developing countries and newly developed countries. We're seeing a huge migration from rural to urban environments and hence a huge amount of new building. But I think certainly in the more developed world, actually dealing with the cities we already have and dealing with the buildings we already have needs to be the focus. And that's really important. And I think that if we have more focus on that and and mitigating and adapting those to deal with these current environmental conditions, then
0: I think we'll be uh, much better on our way than we currently are. And with climate change, it's causing unprecedented uh, challenges for our cities and towns. Can you provide an example that shows how unprepared our cities and towns are when extreme weather hits?
1: Yes, I mean... One of the things that we're going to be facing is that is that when we design buildings and we construct buildings uh, we design to a particular kind of what we call a scenario so typically a one in 100 year weather event now as these become much more common because of the climate change the impact on our on our weather some of the cities that were designed to maybe deal with a hurricane only one in a hundred years suddenly now have to deal with them maybe every decade big example of this could be hurricane sandy that hit new york now the damage caused by hurricane sandy was over 60 billion dollars and it caused so much damage because not only did it hit the areas that were typically expected to receive hurricanes at least once a year it moved and instead of turning back into the atlantic it actually turned landwards and actually moved into new york and new york wasn't designed to deal with that and that's one of the big issues that you're going to be dealing with extreme weather events in cities that aren't designed to to react and adapt to those extreme weather events and that's a that's a big danger because if you look at, say, the infrastructure and the big damage that was caused, for example, in New York, the subway was flooded, one of the major public transport systems in a city. Not everybody in the city uses cars. They use the public transport infrastructure. And if that, one of those major infrastructures goes down, such as the subway, then you're going to have issues of getting people around, moving people from the city, and how you're going to do that. And it's also on the, the other types of built environment infrastructure, such as damage to the buildings, such as hospitals and things like that. So again, we've got to be very careful when we see about this. It's not only just the developing world; it's the it's it's the developed world as well that's going to have a massive going to be affected massively by this these changing weather conditions.
0: So a really great example, and that's looking back at a scenario which adversely affected one of the world's most developed capitals. As you say, it's not just in developing nations where this is hitting. So it's, of course, vital to consider what can be done to prevent such devastation elsewhere. And, And looking with that in mind, can you provide an example of a scenario which could devastate a city? So so proactively thinking of that before it actually happens and and what could and should be done to prevent this?
1: Well, I mean, a very good example, a very interesting one is, um, in fact, London, the capital in the UK, because although they've invested extremely heavily in the flood defences, the Thames Barrier was at the time, I think, the biggest uh, civil engineering project in the UK when it was built. There are models now that will show that in extreme weather events that collide with a high tide uh, could fail. And I think that's, a, that's, that's the danger, because if you look at if that's the Thames barrier failed and we had flooding along the Thames and it affected London, then actually let's look at that scenario. Again, like New York, our major transport public uh, public transport infrastructure is the underground, the tube. And again, you don't want to be using that in a flood for pretty obvious reasons. And then let's, so let's have a look at the other utilities. Well, luckily for us, our major power stations are no longer in the centre of the capital. Uh, they used to be, uh, you know, take modern battery power stations and so forth. But again, look at where the health infrastructure is. So quite a lot of our major hospitals are right by the River Thames. Our houses are parliament, our administration and uh, our government are right by the River Thames. So, again, you can see how an extreme weather event could have a massive I- impact on that. And then we all start looking at the economic impact. Uh, we are a, a service economy in the UK, predominantly. Financial services leading that way. And the biggest hub is in London. And where are the two biggest centres. got Canary Wharf. And again, obviously, hence the name, Wharf. It's uh, right on the river. And the second one is the City of London, both in the flood zone. So you could see... Just there and then, looking at the economic cost alone, be the impact. But then let's look at the aftermath on that. Okay, If we know then that the Thames barrier is uh, vulnerable, uh, who's going to want to insure the buildings after the disaster? Okay, So we're going to be either looking for they're going to be uninsurable, uh, so then that's going to be a big problem uh, for the construction and the finance and the investment, or they're going to have to be government-backed. So again, there'll be an increase in taxation, increase in things like that. So, you know, along with the human and the cost, there are very big economic costs as well that we need to be considering of not doing something. And I think that's the big thing that people keep saying, you know, they they discuss about the cost of doing all of these environmental alterations, but they don't consider what the cost of not doing it could be. And I think that's something we must bear in
0: mind. Very important point, and a, a pretty big nightmare scenario you've given there for for London. In terms of what could and should be done to prevent this, the the answer is is investing to stop the the barriers ever getting into such a state, with with a greater likelihood that an extreme weather condition could ensure that the the banks did overflow. Is is, is that? As, as simple as that, is Is that what you would propose? No, no? it's
1: actually much more complicated than that because mm. it, you, it's not just a case of building a bigger barrier. Mm. Because if you build a bigger barrier, then you've actually got to build the walls around it because it's already as high as the the, the floodplains around it. So it's not only you would have to build, you couldn't just build the barrier bigger and stop the flood. You'd have to build the walls and the flood defences all around. What happens to the people in front of the barrier? So Coney Island, you know, the the island, Essex, uh, Kent and, and 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 so forth, so there there is those costs as well. It's really you. What we want to be looking at is stopping that happening in the first place. So we need to be. Much- this is why you're hearing these two numbers continually. So there's three three degree uh, t- a temperature change and uh, uh, 1.5 degree temperature change. They seem so close, they seem insignificant, but that is the difference. that The difference between those two numbers is the is a huge magnitude in the likelihood of that uh, disaster happening. Mm. So by keeping that degree low, we're decreasing those chances of extreme weather conditions. And that's the thing that is it, you know, if we're looking at the most cost effective way of stopping that, we've looked at models. There are models about building a wall around Manhattan, using the, the, the harbour front in Manhattan to build the walls. There are models around Venice, uh, the lagoon in Venice. There are models around for increasing the height there. And they go into the, uh, into the billions. But even then, even all of those infrastructure projects, they're not impenetrable by extreme weather events. Because even if you stop the storm surge or the flooding, you might you might not be able to stop the hurricane. You know, no flood defence stops a hurricane hitting and extreme high winds and all of the damaging effects of that. And really, we want to be looking at actually saying, we want to prevent that from happening in the first place. We want to be looking at stopping those extreme weather events. And the best way to do that is to bring down our, our increase in global temperatures and to manage those rather than trying to kind of... Build these defences around every city because we're not changing; just we're accepting that change. Because you won't be able to prevent the catastrophe fitting
0: somewhere else. So it's the holistic solution which we're looking for, which obviously COP26 is hopefully focusing yeah. political minds to make these changes, which will ensure we don't see a rise, which will lead to to such greater devastation for, for the world. So, so we looked back at the New York Hurricane Sandy, looked at what could potentially happen with London and its banks. And a more general example is the embedded carbon within our buildings. So how do we go about the issue of decarbonisation?
1: Well, the embedded carbon has already been, the actual carbon emissions from those existing buildings uh, from the construction has already been released because the building has been built. But let's not waste that, Okay, I think a lot of people, certainly I hear things about uh, knocking down and replacing with energy efficient buildings the difficult about that is you you're then reusing more carbon it takes about 30 plus years to recoup the carbon that's used in the construction of a building so what i mean by that that even if the even if the building is zero carbon it takes 30 years of the construction the embedded carbon in the construction to catch up so even if we built Whole new buildings now, it's unlikely that they would even start saving us any carbon until way past 2050. So if we take that figure, then what we have to do is use the buildings we already have and not waste those. And I think there's a lot we can do with our existing cities. And what I mean by that is we can manage, we can look at schemes like new urbanism, the 2000 watt cities, the designs that have been done in India and Switzerland. Where they are adapting and changing the existing environments as well as creating new cities around ecological and sustainable principles. So we're using our transport, we're using private transport yet less, using uh, less fossil fuels, we're using our and managing our buildings better. And I think that's really the way to look at it. One advantage of historic cities in particular is that they were originally designed to be quite sustainable because, you know, when they were originally built, very few people had uh, vehicles or private transport. People walked everywhere and so for Sometimes looking backwards to how cities used to work is sometimes informing how we're going to be uh, moving them forward in the future. But I think one of the th- big things that I think we need to look at, particularly in the developed world and the already developed world, is how we're going to deal with what we already have and not waste that already consumed embodied carbon in our buildings.
0: So very much on the adaptation theme and and, and using what we have there rather than you know, demolishing and starting all over again, which, which might be seen as, as a solution for some in, the, in that sense. So... You've mentioned the economic impact, of course. And again, with all these political leaders meeting, there's going to have to be an awful lot pledged to achieve the aims of COP26. So on this particular issue, how much money, and obviously very much a ballpark figure, it's probably not something you could just type out straight away, but how much money needs to be invested to safeguard our cities and housing stock? And seems a silly question, but how urgently is this needed? I think it would be virtually impossible to give an exact figure. And I think we we look at
1: some of the studies that have been done on this, and I think that it comes down to the the danger of what is the cost of not doing it. And I think that's, I mean, the studies that have been done, if we start reacting and start doing what we're proposing in COP26, we we start tying ourselves into the Paris Agreement, we're looking at probably between 1% and 3% of our GDP. The cost of not doing it, doing something and carrying on as we are is predicted to be well in excess of 10% of our GDP. So I think that that's really the cost. Whatever the cost of doing it, it's going to be significantly less than not doing it. And I think that's going to be the big impact. And I think really there is also this thing about actually we want to do it not just from the economic front, but actually we want our children to have a better world than what we have. You know, that's the aim of our generation. You know, the sustainability, we want our children to have a better future. And I think that's really important. And at the moment, we are going on a trajectory where we're creating a world that is worse than we inherited. And I think that that's quite an alarming state of affairs. You know, throughout human history, generation upon generation have seen an improvement in conditions as a whole. There are, of course, examples, wars and so forth, and uh, in particular uh, individual uh, cases where that's not the case. But uh, as a general whole, our trajectory has been improving generation on generation. But actually, if people are, more, you know, as children born today are much more likely to see extreme weather events, to see drought, to see poverty because of climate change, then we're actually changing that trajectory to saying that we're not willing to change, but the actual people are going to cost off our children. So the future generation is going to pay the cost so I think there's a moral reason for that as well so I think the real the general message is yes we can we've got to afford to do it because the cost of not doing it is so much greater morally, economically financially and I think ethically as well as well on that and I think that's the really important one to bear in mind we've got to react now to prevent what could be one of the
0: biggest disaster into the existence of the human race, really. And and that said in a nutshell, hundred percent. So so yeah, we really do, of course, hope that all these discussions will lead to the actions which are needed. And and yeah, thank you very much for your for your summary of, of why this all matters and in particular zoning in on, on today's theme of adaptation, loss and damage. Uh, all been really interesting. And obviously some devastating damage which can be caused to cities looking back and, and potentially looking ahead. But we do have to frame it in such a way and, and understand how it can affect us and, and the cities we know and love and want our, our children to love as well. So, um, yeah, I thought you've, uh, you've provided some, some really great thoughts there, James. And yeah, been a real enjoyable discussion. So, so thank you. Uh,
1: th- thank you, Andrew. I mean, uh, on the topic of adaption, I think that throughout our history on this planet, Humans have constantly adapted to change, and I think that if we take the more positive view that we can adapt to this new demand upon us, and we take the view that we can do it, I think that there is all the technology, and, and I think there's all of the possibility that we could do it. So I think that's,
0: that's the positive good good always nice to end on a positive as well so yeah <laughs> so uh, yeah we 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 got the uh, the devastation done done earlier in the podcast but but it's yeah. important to recognize it's in it's in our hands and and we have the power to change things and to to uh, engender a better world world for all and and that that really yeah should be the message which carries so uh, yeah thanks thanks for uh steering us into a, in a brighter direction at the end there James okay <laughs> All right. thank you very much Andrew right okay. have a great one cheers